and welcome to this new podcast of the American Journal of Public Health. Well, today we are discussing a fascinating issue that made, as you see, the cover of uh, our recent issue, the drug bust paradox. And I have here with me a series of experts who will help us understand, you know, what is the drug bust paradox uh, and how can we best prevent uh, overdoses. So uh, let me ask each of my participants to introduce him or herself. So let me start with Brandon Del Pozo. Thank you so much for having me. I am Brandon Del Pozo, an assistant professor of medicine and public health at Brown University. Prior to that, I was a police officer. I spent 19 years in the New York City Police Department and four years as the chief of police of Burlington, Vermont. Thank you, Brandon. And uh, Lisa Dugard, uh, please introduce yourself. Good morning. It's great to be with you. I'm uh, Lisa Dugard. I am co-executive director at an organization called Purpose Dignity Action, formerly Public Defender Association, PDA. Based in Seattle, we implement community-based public safety strategies, especially focused on crime related to drug use and the drug economy. And we also provide technical support for other communities around the country that are trying to move in that same direction. Thank you, Lisa. And Nab? Hi, uh, my name is Nabarun Dasgupta. I go by Nab, and I'm an epidemiologist at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, and also an associate editor here at the American Journal of Public Health. Thank you. Thank you, the three of you. And uh, we are two moderators. I think now you have become familiar, those who follow this, uh, this podcast. And I have my great colleague, Vicky Mays, who is a professor at UCLA, who moderates it with me, Alfredo Morabia, and I'm the editor-in-chief of the journal. Great. So let's start. And uh, I'm going to ask all of you like this, you know, what's the best way to approach overdoses and, and avoid, you know, those fatal overdoses that are now a real epidemic in this country? There's a little bit of hesitation because you're asking us to solve the most pressing mortality crisis in our nation's history you know, with that question that you just lofted out there. And I know Lisa and I probably have some similar ideas. It is not by punitive measures or law enforcement. If law enforcement is involved, in my opinion, it's incidentally because they're an apparatus that can get to places quickly and maybe do some life-saving interventions, but not because they're empowered to enforce the criminal law. I think other folks here can say it better than me, but um, there's still a waiting list for medication-assisted treatment for MOUD. There is still stigma about the most effective life-saving interventions, and we're still stigmatizing people in ways that make them ashamed to even seek that help. So there's so many things we can do with like scientifically proven life-saving interventions, and police involvement in those is, in my opinion, incidental at best based on the system we have today. That's great. Lisa, I, I want to, to follow on Brandon. You know, he's, he's talking about stigmatization. What do you understand by the stigmatization of some types of interventions? Well, I think that, you know, the key to any positive progress is normalization um, and awareness that drug use is pervasive in our society. The use of illegal drugs is pervasive in our society. The increasing toxicity of the drug supply is causing an ever-escalating arc of mortality. Mortality isn't the only way in which this whole 
ecosystem is playing out harmfully to people. So I, I think the over-concentration on death is really, you know, it narrows the conversation unnecessarily. A colleague uh, out here once said, you know, we were having a conversation about preventing death. And she said, I really think that the most important conversation that we can have is focused on how people live, not whether we can avoid death. Because truthfully, unless people can live in circumstances that are dignified and offer the prospect of a meaningful life, it is very difficult to persuade and recruit people to care for their own health and ability to, you know, avoid death through safer practices, through community, through relationship, through access to care. So we really focus on the way people are living and not just the avoidance of death. But to your question, you know, the fact is that everybody in this society has an interest in recognizing what overdose looks like and having the means of reversing overdose. And everyone can, you know, universal naloxone, access, carrying, and people feeling confident to use naloxone is the single best strategy to prevent overdose death. And everyone can do it. Everyone can use it. Demystifying that, making access to naloxone supply free, to me, is the the single most important step. Police can, can do that like any other human being a member of our society and they and do and that's fabulous police like everybody else who administer naloxone also have the sort of challenging experience that people for who have just experienced an overdose reversal are often not thrilled about that and head off into a further cycle of vulnerable and compromised existence and so the like what comes after overdose reversal is Again, you know, to me, the most important issue for us to tackle. I love what you say because, you know, I think public health needs to be bottom up. I mean, it needs to involve communities and people, communities trained to give naloxone. I mean, it must be the best solution there. We'll talk more about that. Let me go to NAB now, because NAB, you're also an associate editor of the journal. And you told me when we received this article, you said, that's an important one. We should do something about that. So tell me, what's your perception of the results that we published uh, from that study? Yeah, I think the results at first seemed paradoxical because a lot of Law enforcement have good intentions in mind in trying to prevent the harms that they see in their communities with the tools and training that they've received. And I'm sensitive to those desires. And at the same time, you know, we've been facing this overdose problem for decades. I've been in this field for more than two decades. And the things that we've been doing haven't been working. And it is definitely time for some new solutions. And one of the things that struck me about this paper was the scope of how many overdoses there were related Mm -hmm. to how much police involvement there was. I mean, we're talking about uh, many-fold more overdoses that were even reported, let alone what weren't reported, right? And so in some ways, law enforcement is very unmatched to the needs of the actual prevalence of overdoses. And so I think you know, like Lisa said, you know, really involving community to be the first first responders is a major part of what needs to be done. And because this study was so, 
you know, counterintuitive in some ways that uh, and the results were, uh, like I said, paradoxical. We put it through a very rigorous vetting process in terms of getting, making sure the statistics were rigorous. And it was a more extensive process than we usually put through for most papers. So I'm confident about the results. And I think the author should be commended for putting up with all our <laughs> infinite rounds of review requests. I wanted to ask Brandon a question, because when we say if the police are not the ones that should be their first line, who, and you've been a policeman, who do you think should really be doing this work? And to Lisa's comments about what is it that we should be paying attention to, if not death? Right. Thank you for asking those thoughtful questions, Vicki. So, so first, by way of clarification, NAB, it definitely felt like a long review process. And I call it like a historic one with eight reviewers. I love to tell friends in other disciplines, oh, my, my paper got reviewed by eight reviewers and it raises their eyebrows. But thank you, because it really is a conclusion. The idea that police drug seizures associate with more overdose in their aftermath rather than less is counterintuitive. But when I explain it to chiefs of police and officers and in interviews I've been doing lately for other research, at first they recoil, but then when you explain it, they, they start nodding and go, no, I could see that. I've seen that in my experience. So it's counterintuitive at once, but then at the same time, also people get it. Um, as far as death, one of the things that I think and I wonder what Lisa thinks about this. This is to answer one of Vicky's two questions. I used as a chief of police death as the North Star for our reform efforts because I felt that people understood the, that consequence. Everybody had been touched by it. And my thought was that Lisa is right, that there's so much more than uh, death to getting this right, to really digging our way out of this crisis. But my logic was that if you pursue the things that really reduce overdose death sustainably and in the long term, you're going to have to, if you're doing it with open eyes, address so many of the things that I think Lisa very thoughtfully talked about, about life circumstances, opportunities, hopelessness, other supports. And as far as who should be involved, like I have some data we're preparing for publication that says 80% of the agencies we sample, the officers carry naloxone. So the majority, right? But I think it is such a simple intervention with so such a low risk of, of misapplication or misuse Really, like every, it, it should be as universal as CPR. Like naloxone should be in every purse, on every keychain, in every glove box. And not only police, but EMS should be the second tier of responders. It should be the first person who discovers the victim should be the one capable of delivering naloxone. And I think the research supports that. I think a part of the issue with law enforcement carrying naloxone, at least in practice, as we've seen in North Carolina, has been that there is so much fear that has been put in the minds of law enforcement and community about how dangerous fentanyl is by contact or in the air that we have spoken to. We've heard of many, many cases here where police officers were carrying naloxone but refused to use it on someone who was down because they wanted to save it for themselves in case they encountered fentanyl in the environment. And I think part of that needs to be, you know, that needs to be fixed. Uh, I don't know exactly how to do that, but it is a myth that needs to be uh, addressed. You can't overdose from touching fentanyl. It doesn't get aerosolized in a way that causes overdoses. I do. I really want to commend. I, I think this paper is really important and it is getting, you know, it immediately got a lot of attention 
I think the reason why is not just that it's paradoxical that a strategy that is meant to decrease toxicity, you know, a toxic drug supply actually increases toxic harms, which is, you know, important in and of itself. But I also think that it's resonating because it gets at a paradox in advocacy. So those of us who have long believed that there's everything wrong with a sort of criminalization paradigm for drugs in the drug economy have chipped away at that by tacitly confirming a differentiation between drug use and and the drug supply chain. Knowing that the public expects police to do something about this sort of nested set of really problematic behaviors and consequences, we have kind of just Knowing that it was not valid or a good idea, we have nonetheless sort of consigned police to like, well, you'll deal with, you know, the upper level of the supply process, whereas we public, you know, community-based or public health folks will come for users. I think that this paper strips away any rationale for that. Like, we can no longer justify harm reduction strategy to policing where where we say, you know, we're just going to concede that police will be assigned to do this part. I mean, it may not be great, but how much harm does it really do? It turns out it does tremendous harm. So for me, the ramifications of this paper are forcing me and you know colleagues to fully replace legalization, non-commercial legalization, and safe supply strategies for a kind of like, well, we're going to de facto decriminalize use and possession because it's just a completely unfair assignment to law enforcement. There's really no role that they can play that's not contributing to harm. And I think we need to stop pretending that we don't that we don't know that. But that's why that's why I mean, for me, I, I don't understand so much the paradox because when I see those armed people, and and I'll uh, go and deal with someone who is you know overusing uh, some some drugs. I, it must end in a poor way, I mean, very often. But also, usually, it's not exactly the same thing for everybody in the community. Some groups are more likely, probably, to uh, be victim of this law enforcement forms of, of, of violence. So, uh, what do you think about that? Is there justice in the drug paradox, or is there additional injustice there? I, I think no matter how you cut it, there are serious inequities. And Lisa, thanks for praise on the paper. Just by to give credit where it's due, you know, Jennifer Carroll, the co-author, has been drawing these qualitative conclusions from people for years, and along with her colleagues. This puts a nice empirical foundation to that. And Brad Ray had the vision to bring this from an idea through a grant to print. So it's such a, a great team. But what you ask about the the inequity, it, clearly there are racial inequities involved here. So on the one side, you have police officers in our interviews saying, I'll do anything it takes to get this junk off the street. That's if I can just get one dose off the street, I'm doing my part. And now we're saying the paradox is that that seems quite reasonable, but not true at all. Not true qualitatively. Now, empirically, there's this big evidence base. But as far as the police response and the, and the consequences of the response, we have data we're looking at that, that hopefully we'll submit soon. But I feel comfortable talking about it, that if you're an overdose victim, 20% of the time in the same setting, in the Indianapolis setting that this paper takes place in, 20% of the time the caller calls it in as something other than an overdose. 
because they're afraid to say it's an overdose, presumably in many of those cases, because they're afraid for the police to come. And if you are a black overdose victim, you are twice as likely, so it's almost 40% of the time, that a caller is hesitant to say, help, it's an overdose. And presumably that's because they're afraid the police are going to come and make arrests, right? So it, it, clearly there's this, this general fear, and then that fear is, is the risk is doubled when it's a victim from a minoritized population. Yeah, but, but it, it's a rational fear, right? Listen, Brad Ray again led a paper that I'm privileged to be on that shows that in this very same setting, what's the... Nan might know the percentage, but something like 20% of the people who are treated for an overdose end up arrested within 24 hours in Indianapolis. We published that in Drug and Alcohol Dependence about a year ago. So sure, it's, it's a very rational fear. And there's a lot of laws that have called Good Samaritan laws that have tried to provide some kind of protection for people who are calling 911 in an overdose. As a concept, those laws are really helpful, but in practice, there's a lot of nuance where there's exceptions carved out or they don't include fentanyl, for example, in North Carolina. And the amount of protection that those laws provide is almost kind of academic or abstract when people are still continued to be arrested and charged for crimes related to that scene where the overdose occurred. So even if we have those laws in place, it's often the perception of those laws and the way that they're incomplete in a lot of ways that render them toothless in a lot of states for actually encouraging people to make the right calls. You're right. Indianapolis has fairly weak Good Samaritan laws. There's a lot of qualifications. And I'm only butting in to correct myself. I just looked it up. It's 10% of the people who are treated for an overdose, an opioid overdose, in this setting of the paper, Indianapolis, are arrested within six hours. So presumably as a consequence of the overdose. I also think this is another phenomenon that's accelerating these days is the, the use of homicide prosecutions when there's this tragic story of the, the three girls found in a car and two had died um, of overdose in the third, who was, of course, you know, just part of the same social circle. I think it was right before their high school graduation. It was arbitrary who survived, but the surviving girls being prosecuted for homicide, for supplying drugs to the girls who died. That is, you know, felt by many people to be a way to value life. And to me, what, and, and it's a real threat, you know, as that trend takes off among prosecutors and law enforcement agencies as like a strat. Note that it is coded as a way to value the lives of drug users, right? Because these deaths matter, we're going to go after the perpetrators of this killing, this illegal killing. I just am so struck by the randomness, right? Everyone who has lost a child I mean, so much, so much of bad policy right now is being driven by the terror of parents that they're going to lose their kids, as well as by, you know, sort of a, a civic reaction to public disorder. So I would say both of those dynamics are really in play. But the terror that parents are going to lose their kids, I think, is responsible for some of the most acutely problematic law enforcement, you know, pressure on law enforcement, pressure on prosecutors to use the criminal legal system in this way. And again, for me, the correction to this is really about helping parents understand that their kid is just as likely to be 
prosecuted, right? I mean, everyone who uses exchanges drugs, everyone who uses delivers drugs, everyone is part of that potential liability, vulnerable to potential prosecution. It's just kind of, you know, Russian roulette, who is in which chair when the music stops. And that it just really contesting the idea that this is how we value the lives of drug users is by sacrificing other drug users to the machinery of random accountability is super high, super high priority, I think. That's extremely interesting. Actually, this idea of, of a campaign to make naloxone you know, available to everybody and uh, to be able to help uh, people uh, that have overdose, remind me, I'm from another generation than you, but in the 60s, there was this epidemic of heart attacks. You know, there were many more than today. And there was this campaign in order to generate, to train the community to the heart resuscitation I, I think it, it worked relatively well in some places like Seattle were uh, models for that. So we, we're getting to the end of this uh, podcast. I want to ask each of you to, you know, summarize what uh, you think is the main recommendation you would have for uh, public health authorities, you know, what they should do, what they should implement. And then, Vicky, I'd be very curious to know what's your take about on this discussion. So, Brandon, since you started, your, your final comments. Thanks. Two, two things. I think insofar as we're considering decriminalization and following in the footsteps of places like Oregon, for example, I think we should be, we'd be well served to pay close attention to why Portugal was successful, how comprehensive and thorough it was, and how it really put resources behind the, uh, the effort to decriminalize. Also understand the limitations of Portugal. People hold it up as the gold standard. It really is very, very effective at their heroin-based opioid use. There are other holes in their approach that they haven't had to deal with that we do in the US, a lot of methamphetamines, fentanyl. So just be realistic about the prospects of that. And the second, you know, in, in my, my day job, I've had the opportunity to interview countless police officers about substance use. I'm in the middle of two studies now. They in my opinion, feel like they're at the end of their rope. They recognize that what they're doing hasn't worked for years. They recognize they're constantly getting called to these things. I'm not saying that overnight they're all going to change their mind and go become public health researchers like I did, but I think that there's an appetite for change and reform because they're getting very weary of this work. And maybe it's time to capitalize on that. That's great. Very interesting. Lisa, your final comments. I do think this Research pushes us to look at the struggle for legalization and safe supply. I don't mean in a commercialized framework as with cannabis in many states. I, I don't think our society will tolerate that, nor is it necessarily ethical. But to me, we need to move from a decrim of possession conversation to a legalization safe supply conversation as advocates. In terms of public health practices, we work with hundreds and hundreds of drug users who are still using drugs but moved into non-congregate temporary lodging that we started providing during COVID. And notably, I mean, people are struggling. It's a really rough situation, and I don't want to overstate, you know, how brilliant everyone's recovery arc has been. But no person in those programs has died of overdose and, you know, on the streets and in permanent supportive housing and in lots of other methodologies, people are dying in large numbers. 
So there's something about wraparound services in a how in the context of housing and where people are living. People use fentanyl so often that interventions like supervised consumption facilities and so on. I mean, people basically have to live there in order to be observed in every administration of the drug. I think we need to put services where people live and make sure people have a place to live and that that's the most important road. Sounds great. Sounds great. Nab, please. Yeah, I think as public health commissioners around the country are starting to use opioid settlement funds to address and have resources for the first time in a big way, I think this is a time for innovation. You know, on one hand, we should look at the evidence-based approaches that we know already work, medication-assisted therapy, supervised consumption sites, some forms of safe supply, and naloxone, of course. But I think this is also a time for innovation, looking at the social and structural determinants of health, the corporate determinants of health, like why does naloxone cost so much, and all these other aspects that impact what actually will change the trajectory of the overdose problem. So I think, you know, I encourage our county commissioners and public health authorities to really take this opportunity, take this paper as evidence that they should be pushing for more innovative solutions that are right for their context. Sounds absolutely logical. That's what we should do. So, Vicky, you have the final words of this podcast. Thank you. You know, one of the things that I was struck by listening to this conversation is where do we get off track in terms of the values that are driving some of the actions? And some of it seems to be major. You know, a school ends up with several overdoses and we come up with a policy. I think one of the best things that this research did was to be able to find a paradox. It should be leading us to rethink what we're doing. It should be leading NIH, NIDA in particular, to rethink what is innovation. And it should have public health stepping back and saying, this is not the problem of the police as a management issue. It is the problem of society. And where are all the various places that public health can help to address this problem? So if I were to write a movie script, this would be the unintended consequences of our values. That's nothing more to say. And so we're going to close this podcast here. Thank you, Vicky. Thank you, everybody, for this fascinating conversation. I've learned enormously, you know, frankly, before, after, I'm a different person. So thanks for you, for your expertise and for your work. We are all very grateful for that. Grateful for this research and the conversation that it's sparking. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you very much. Got to town, I saw you feeling low I saw how your dreams drowned in snow